0: Hey, this is Matt Stacy, youth pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching New Life Tabernacle. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the message. Last week, or the week before last, we looked at the first three verses. We looked in verse number three at the promise from the Lord that there is a blessing attached to those that read the Word, hear the Word, and keep or obey the things that is written inside of uh, this book. And it's the only book in the Bible that comes with that promise. And then we looked last week at verses 4 through 8, and we ended talking about the Almighty God, and how Jesus claimed to be the same God of the Old Testament. And this week, he's going to make, as we study verses 9 through 20, he's going to take those claims even further. And he's going to reveal himself a little bit more. Um, the, The whole point of the book of Revelation is understanding Jesus. Who Jesus is. What Jesus has done what he's going to do. It's the culmination of the entire word of the Lord. It's a great book, and I'm thankful for the opportunity tonight to study it. But let's jump right on into the word of the Lord. We look at verse number 9. It says this, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, And in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He said, I was in the Spirit on, verse number 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, verse 11, saying, I am Alpha and Omega beginning the first and the last, rather, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. We look here, and we already, at the very beginning of our study, we discussed who the writer was, and... John again lets us know one more time who it is that is receiving the revelation, who it is that is writing the vision down. John again declares himself to be the writer here. He never, interestingly enough about John, identifies himself as the apostle, though we know that he is the apostle. Most likely this is because it was never under dispute. If you read uh, Paul's letters to churches, Paul is constantly having to state and restate that he is an apostle. And he has to do that because his apostleship is under constant attack. People constantly questioning whether or not Paul is sent from God, whether or not he has a word from God. John, on the other hand, apparently doesn't have to go through that His apostleship is not under question. John's ministry seems to have never been in doubt. So he just calls himself John. We know that John was very young when he met Jesus. Most likely anywhere from the ages of 20 to 30. Spent significant time with Jesus. Here at the writing of this book, he's around the age of 90. We see that John... We know from his previous writings and from this writing that John is a very humble, an incredibly humble person, a humble man. He never brags on himself. He never draws undue attention to himself. He's always pointing to Jesus through every bit of his writing, and the book of Revelation is no exception. Always pointing to Jesus. It was John that was the only apostle at the foot of the cross. Jesus, hanging on a cross, dying for the sin of all humanity, was abandoned. He was left alone. But it was John that was there. John had a special connection with Jesus. Uh, I've heard one writer say that John would have been considered Jesus' best friend while he was on earth. He was close to Jesus. Jesus. And that's why John was close to Jesus even while Jesus was on the cross. So close, in fact, that Jesus asked John to look after his mother. A a high honor. And yet, though all of that is true, John never draws attention to himself. He just points it back at Jesus. It's that man that has received this revelation and is declaring it to the church. We find in this first verse... Um, he said, verse number 9, rather, that's the first verse that we're dealing with tonight, um, that he says that he is a companion with the people of God in tribulation. Now, that word can throw us off because when we see the word tribulation, we think of the great tribulation. But tribulation was often used in Scripture and it typifies um, just the the general struggle and constant trials of the people of God. Uh, Jesus said that that we were going to go through many tribulations, many trials. Um, this is what John is talking about. He's saying, "I am a companion with you in your suffering. I've been with you in your suffering. I know what it's like to suffer for Christ." And he really does because at the time of this writing, he is on the Isle of. Patmos. And I discussed it in the first. Writers differ what goes on on the Isle of Patmos. Some believe that um, they were sentenced to hard labor while they were there. But honestly, that's not really important. What's important is the fact that they sent John away to keep him away from the churches, to keep him from influencing the people of God. His influence was so strong on the people of God. They respected him. They listened to him. Um, Just like I stated before, he doesn't even have to argue that he's an apostle. It's accepted. It's understood. His influence is so great. Why is he on the Isle of Patmos? He's on the Isle of Patmos, he says, for the word of the Lord and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So he's been banished because he preached Jesus. And because he refused to stop preaching Jesus, he continued to preach Jesus. And as I read that and I, and I'm thinking about John in that place as he's sitting there and he's thinking about his situation on the Isle of Patmos. And it, it, there's almost a a, a joy there of him, of, of him letting them know why I'm here. I'm not here vacationing on the Isle of Patmos. I'm not here because I chose to evangelize the Isle of Patmos, though history and tradition shows us that he was evangelizing amongst the prisoners while he was there. But he lets them know, I'm here because I was preaching Jesus. And I wonder, as we get closer and closer to the coming of the Lord, as the darkness around us is becoming greater and greater How many of us are going to have the same commitment that John does? That you can take us away from everything we know, away from everything we love, and we're still going to have joy, and we're going to do it with our head held high because we just love Jesus, and we love telling people about Jesus. John refused to stop preaching Jesus. Patmos was actually the last resort of the Romans. They had tried other things. They had tried to stop him several ways. They tried to boil him in oil um, to get him to stop. But it wouldn't, it didn't, Brother Kendall it didn't touch him. It didn't hurt him. He was the only apostle that didn't see death uh, as a martyr. He died a, 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 an ordinary death, the death of an old man. And so they tried many things and they couldn't stop him. So what did they try to do? They said, because we can't kill him, we'll keep him from influencing the church. We'll put him on an island away from everybody so that they can't hear from him. And what's interesting, and I I love this, is that even though they kept him from the rest of the church, they couldn't keep him from Jesus. And so even the attempt of the enemy to isolate the man of God from people, From the people of God. Couldn't keep God from coming to the man of God and giving him a word. So here he was, and I find it interesting. He says, I was on the Isle of Patmos. I'm at the place where they banished me to keep me from influencing the people of God. And it's here that God gives me a word. Uh, Possibly the greatest word that we have, the revelation of Jesus, the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus Christ. He was given to John in the place where the world was trying to keep him away from everybody else. That's where God decides to give him a revelation. How did the revelation come? He says he was in the Spirit. What does that mean? It's, it's through or by means of the spirit that he was able to receive that revelation. It's, it's very similar, most likely, to what Peter experienced on the rooftop. Peter's on the rooftop. He's praying and he went into a trance, if you will. And, uh, he saw a vision of the Lord bringing down, um, animals and, And it could also be similar to Paul's experience of being transferred to the third heaven. Paul said that whether I was there in in my body or not, I don't even know. And so they all had a kind of similar experience here. Uh, John just says it like this, I was in the Spirit. I, I don't know exactly how to explain it. I don't know exactly what happened, but I was in the Spirit and God gave me this revelation. It's through the Spirit that He... We know that it was no flesh. It wasn't a fleshly thing. It wasn't the imagination of John. People, we, we, we live... Because we're created in the image of God, we have great imaginations. People can conjure up some of the greatest stories um, that have ever been told. But this is not a story that has been conjured up in the mind of man Uh, by John. John, even though he may have been a brilliant man, he was not that brilliant. He says, I didn't get this myself. I was in the Spirit. And that's whenever I got this revelation. When did it happen? It happened on, he says, the Lord's Day. I was in the Spirit and it was on the Lord's Day. What does he mean by that? Um, There are a few different uh, explanations. John Wolver sees this as referring to uh, to the um, day of the Lord mentioned in the Old Testament, that day of wrath that is coming. In other words, in his, his idea would be that John was saying that he was seeing himself in the future on the day of the Lord when when the end of the world was come. That's one explanation. Others believe that it's just referring to the first day of the week. Still others, and I tend to take this view Um, Like Brother Trees, he believes that this was a day to honor the Lord's resurrection every week. And this is actually how we now have the tradition of a Sunday uh, where we come together and we honor God and we worship the Lord. And it it all started with them taking a day out of the week, the beginning of the week, and, and honoring the Lord's resurrection, remembering the resurrection of the Lord. I tend to take that view. I believe that what was happening here is John is on that day every week that he's been doing since Jesus uh, rose from the dead. He's been spending time with the people of God. And I believe it's on this day that John just does what he's always done. He finds a quiet place. Um, they say that if you go to Patmos and you face Uh, on the side of the island that faces Ephesus, which is where the church was located, and those seven churches actually that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, that if you're on Patmos and you're on the side of the island that faces them, that there's a cave over there. And it's possible that this was the cave where John wrote his the book of Revelation, where he received that vision. And I just kind of like to think that it's the Lord's day and he knows that the church is gathering in Ephesus on the Lord's Day, and he gathers himself, maybe it's in this cave, looking out over the water, envisioning the church at Ephesus, longing in his heart to be with them, and he's praying for the churches there, and because he's got the heart of a pastor, the heart of a leader, and though he's separated from them, he's still with them, Uh, in spirit. And it's in this environment that God is giving him a word for those churches. I, I don't know that it's any coincidence that he was on the Lord's day, possibly thinking about the churches of God, when God gives him a word for the churches. The churches actually that he ministered to. What happens next? John hears a voice. As he's sitting there, he hears a voice behind him, and the voice tells him uh, to write to the seven churches. And what's interesting is the voice behind him claims to be Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Now, we talked last week about how Jesus claimed to be the God of the Old Testament, We know that He did because He called Himself the Almighty. And that name was reserved. The Almighty was for God. He's the only one that gets to be called that. In the Old Testament, in Genesis, He calls Himself Almighty. Jesus claims that name for Himself. He says, I am Almighty. And then here He, again, what is Revelation? It's the unveiling, the revealing of who Jesus is. One more step of this process, of this unveiling, is the voice behind him says, I am Alpha and Omega. I am the first and I am the last. And, and, uh, and so John, no doubt, he's a Jewish man. He has a deep understanding of the word of the Lord. I wonder if John has in his mind, when he hears the voice of Jesus at this time, he's not sure who it is, but in a minute, he's, we're going to see that he's, he is shown who it is, that it's Jesus talking. I wonder if he thinks of Isaiah 44 and verse 6. Isaiah 44 and verse 6 says this, it says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Here we go. I am the first, and I am the last. And beside me there is no God. I am the first, I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Who says that? That's Yahweh. That's the God of the Old Testament. So we've got Jesus claiming to be Almighty, just like God will claim to be Almighty in the Old Testament. And then here we have Jesus saying, I am first and I am last. And we may struggle for answers, but I know that John didn't struggle for answers. He knew who it was that was the first and the last. It was Yahweh, it was Jehovah God of the Old Testament. And God of the Old Testament said, there is no God beside me. I am first, I am last. And so Jesus comes along and says that he's first and he's last. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is not trying to confuse us. Jesus is revealing himself to us. I am the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. It's me. It's Jesus, the Lord God Almighty. Again, Jesus in no uncertain terms is claiming to be the God of the Old Testament. It's the same God. He hasn't changed the same yesterday, today, and forever. We look at the next verse. John, or Revelation rather, chapter 1, verse 12, and it reads like this And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. We're going to look in this next few verses here, we're going to look at what John saw. So, John is on the Isle of Patmos, he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and through the Spirit, He is. He has a vision revealed to him. He's seeing these things. We know that it's a vision because it says, Write what thou seest. So he's seeing these things. Behind him he hears the voice saying, I am first and I am last. And so he turns around. And when he turns around, this is what he sees. And we're going to cover this in the next few verses. First, John sees seven golden candlesticks. Or lampstands, if you will. If you'll look at verse 20, it says, uh, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in thy right hand, and seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels uh, of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So this is one of those instances where we don't have to wonder what these candlesticks represent. We know because it was revealed to John. John said that the seven candlesticks uh, are the seven churches. They represent the seven churches. Let's look at verse 13. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one, like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the papes with a golden girdle. What does he see next? He sees one and what is this one doing he is walking amidst if you will the candlesticks so you John sees this vision he sees seven golden candlesticks they're all in a circle and who does he see in the middle of it he sees one like the son of man and he's he's in the middle of these golden candlesticks we look at Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 who is the son of man? What is, what is John referring to? He's, he's leaning all the way back to Daniel verse 13. He says, it says, I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near him. So that's the son of man that, that John is seeing that's walking around in the midst of these golden candlesticks. He looks at the Son of Man. The Son of Man, one thing we notice right off the bat is that He is completely clothed. And He's wearing a golden girdle. Um, completely clothed. Why is that significant? Because the last time John saw Jesus, uh, he remembers how Jesus, they tore the clothes off of Him and they sold His clothes uh, for money and, 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 uh, and gain and that kind of thing. But the next time he sees Jesus... Jesus is not defeated, He's not naked, but He's fully clothed and He's got the garments of a priest, if you will. He's beginning to see Jesus, this is the beginning stages of Him seeing Jesus in His glorified state. No longer just as man. We're seeing Jesus be revealed, unveiled to John. The next thing that we notice that we want to draw our attention to is uh, what I would just call Jesus goes to church. Jesus goes to church. It's significant. We've got to stop. We've got to pay attention. He sees seven candlesticks, and we're told that the seven candlesticks represent seven churches. And what does he see? But Jesus walking amidst the seven golden candlesticks, examining them, taking them in, making sure that their light is shining brightly. Jesus goes to church. Do we fully understand? I I, I heard some chuckles um, because it's like, well, it's obvious that Jesus goes to church. But do we fully understand the implications of Jesus goes to church? The implication of the fact that Jesus is examining each church, seeing whether or not their light is shining. And as we study, starting next week, the seven churches, we're going to get into uh, how Jesus feels about the church and, and, and words of warning that He gives the church and the threat of the golden candlestick being removed from one of the churches. But it should be a sobering thing. We're living in a day and age where people, uh, they want to make church more seeker friendly. They want to make church more comfortable for everybody. They want, to, uh, they want to make church casual. They want to make church just, it's kind of like a hangout thing. It, it's something we do to feel good in the middle of the week and at the beginning of the week. And that's church. But I feel like that maybe our focus is in the wrong place. Maybe we shouldn't be so concerned with how I feel or how you feel or even how visitors feel. And we want visitors to feel comfortable. But maybe we shouldn't be so concerned about how the visitor feels. But maybe, maybe we should be completely concerned, completely focused on, completely caught up in how Jesus feels about His church. God forbid that we would ever forget that Jesus goes to church. And Jesus is examining the church. See, we're not here alone. And, and sometimes it might feel like that, where we just come to church on Wednesday night and we're going to hear the preacher teach about the word of the Lord and we're going to see each other and we're going to make each other feel good and we're going to encourage each other, then we're going to go home. But don't forget that we're here for Jesus. He's why we're here and I believe and I don't just believe it, I know it because I feel him. He's here now examining what's going on in this service now. and I want to be pleasing to him. Amen. Jesus goes to church. I hope we fully understand those implications. That's why our songs that we sing, it's so important what we sing. it's not about us, it's about him. When we sing our songs, it shouldn't be me focused, it should be Jesus focused. Whenever we're reaching for people, we should be doing so with the hopes of pleasing Jesus. When the preacher gets up here behind the word, I hope that I say something that encourages you. I hope that it gets inside of you, that it that it opens up your understanding. But more importantly, Jesus is here. I don't know where he's sitting, but I know that he's here and he's watching. And I want to make sure that I'm pleasing to him, that what I say is pleasing to him. I don't know if it's going to hit everybody the right way. Whenever I get up behind the Word of the Lord to preach, I don't know if it's going to impress anybody. I don't know if anybody's going to be pleased with what I say. But it's not important if people are pleased. What's important is if Almighty God is pleased. We have to remember Jesus Jesus goes to church. Amen. Jesus goes to church. At least... In the very least, we better hope that He does. Because if He ever stops showing up, then we're lost. What does John see next? He's Again, he's beginning to see Jesus closer and, and more is being revealed of Jesus. One writer called it said it like this, this is Christ unedited, this is Jesus unedited, Jesus revealed, this is Jesus without any filters on. Let's look at Revelation 14. It says, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. Let's look closely at his head and his hairs were white like wool or snow. Now remember when John first turned around and he saw the golden candlesticks, he saw one in the middle and he said, this is like the Son of Man. So his first glimpse, before he gets a closer look, a closer understanding, he just says, This looks like the Son of Man. And why was he thinking of the Son of Man? He was thinking back in Daniel and in Daniel 7, where the the Son of Man was promised a kingdom, and he was promised a a an, an, an unending reign. A reign that would go on forever. He was, he was promised all of this. And who was he promised it by? He was promised it by the ancient of days. And so in John's mind, no doubt this is a representation of the father and the son. And so when Jesus or John looks back at Jesus, his first glimpse of him, he says, it looks like the son of man. He thinks of Jesus inheriting that kingdom. But then he gets a little bit further. And he, and he, again, we're, we're seeing Jesus unedited. We're seeing Jesus unveiled. And what does he see when he looks closer at the son of man or who he thinks is the son of man? He sees someone that's got hair that's as white as wool. What's interesting is if you go back to Daniel 7, you look at verse 9, this describes somebody, but it doesn't describe who John thinks it describes or who we would originally assume that it describes. Verse number 9 in chapter 7 of Daniel, it says, I beheld the thrones were cast down, and the ancient of days did sit. Here we go, whose garment was white as snow, and look at this, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wills as burning fire. So what happens when John gets a closer look is it's not just the son of man that I'm seeing, but this is the ancient of days. He's got hair that's white as wool. What is this? What is this representing, if you will? I told you before, you've got Jesus and, and that's the flesh. And then you've got the father and, and that is the deity of, of God that, and then we have, so Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. So if you look in Daniel, you've got the Son of Man, and he represents Jesus. And then you've got the Ancient of Days, and that's the Spirit of God. And and clearly Daniel sees two different people. But John looks, and John doesn't see two separate people. John looks and he sees one. Except the one that he's seeing, he thought it was the Son of Man. And he knows it's Jesus. He recognizes Jesus. But what is he, and Jesus calls himself the, the the Almighty, and Jesus says he's the first and the last. And then not only this, but he gets a deeper revelation, and Jesus reveals to him that not only am I the Almighty, not only am I, uh, the first and the last, but I'm the Ancient of Days. Amen. I'm the Ancient of Days. So what do we see here? We see a melding of the two. The flesh and the deity becoming one, and they are one, and that's the only God that Jesus or that John sees. It's Jesus. What does the white hair represent? It's it's the eternality of God, just like the name uh, the name says, "Ancient of Days." It's that one who's been around forever. It's 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 that it's that one that has lived forever. I love this story. Abraham Lincoln, after passing, or after he's on his deathbed, he's getting ready to pass, and then he finally passes, the minister standing over him says, now we commend this man to the ages. Every once in a while, somebody is great enough, lives a great enough life that we just say that they're going to be remembered forever. We commend him to the ages. Lincoln will never be forgotten is basically what he's saying. But let us never forget that though we commend Abraham Lincoln to the ages, the ages belong to Jesus. Jesus is not a part of the ages. Jesus holds the ages in his hand from beginning to end. He sees the end from, or sees the beginning from the end. He sees the whole picture. He's at the beginning and he's at the end. Amen. We see Jesus. The next thing that John sees is, and we've got to look closely at this, he sees eyes that are like flames of fire. What does this speak of? This speaks of the penetrating gaze of the Lord. The penetrating gaze of Jesus. One writer put it this way, he said, Jesus not only sees to us, but Jesus sees through us. He not only takes care of our every need, but He knows what's deep in on the inside that we've got hidden from everybody. There's no place to hide or run to. Speaking of the fire, John Phillips says this, fire burns and it bores its way into the heart of the toughest wood and it can melt the strongest steel. Fire is all-consuming. What is this representing when we see Jesus with eyes of fire? We see someone who cannot be held back. He sees everything. There's nothing that can be hidden from Jesus. He told Nathaniel, When you were under the fig tree, I was there. The woman at the well said to others about Jesus, She said, Come see a man which told me all things That ever I did. In other words, Jesus knows everything about me. Speaking of the Pharisees, Matthew writes that Jesus knew their thoughts. They were thinking thoughts by themselves. They were, they were conspiring together. And Matthew said the whole time Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. How with those eyes of fire, Jesus sees and he examines everything. In the Old Testament, God told Samuel, He said, man looks on the outward, but God examines the heart. You cannot escape the eyes of the Lord. That's what those flames of fire tell us. That there's nowhere we can go, there's nowhere that we can hide, there's nowhere that we can get a reprieve from the eyes of the Lord always watching ever on us. Revelation 1.15, And his feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. So what we have here, he says, feet like brass. This could also be translated glowing brass, as it is refined in fire. Brother Tree said this about the feet of brass. He said, the overpowering thought... Is that the feet of our Lord walked through the fires of tests and trials, yet the fire did not destroy, but only made them shine. Jesus cannot be stopped. That's the, that's the, that's the implication of the feet of fine brass. It cannot be stopped. Fire couldn't stop him. Trials couldn't hinder him. He keeps moving on. The truth keeps Marching on. He's walked where you walked and he was and is victorious. Then John says that his voice was the voice of many waters, the sound of many waters. If you've ever been and I've had the privilege of visiting, my family has had the privilege of visiting Niagara Falls, then you know that there's something almost all consuming about the sound of those falls. It, it consumes everything. It's loud. It's boisterous, and I haven't been on the boat that gets real close to it. But I've been told that it, it it it's almost penetrating the sound of many waters. If you're on that boat as you get closer to the roaring of the water, and John says that he heard a voice that was mightier than many waters. So imagine if those at the Niagara Falls if 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 the water there is overwhelming no one can argue with the voice of Jesus and win that argument can you imagine arguing with something greater than the Niagara Falls a sound a voice that booms with greater with greater with greater than Niagara Falls absolutely not verse 16 and he had in his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength i love this seven stars in his right hand because of verse 20 we know that the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches Now, what does this mean, the the term angel? It's angelos in the Greek. It means a messenger. Now, we know that this is not a heavenly messenger because, as we'll find out in our study of the seven churches several times, Jesus corrects the messenger of the churches. And an angel is not going to receive correction and be called to repentance because an angel cannot be redeemed. So we know that this is not... Uh, angelic beings in that sense but these are human messengers so I believe that what this is is it's the pastors the leaders of the seven churches that's who John is required to write to so if you will he sees the seven stars in the right hand of Jesus and we know that these seven stars represent the seven leaders of the seven churches now The right hand, what does that represent in Scripture? It represents power, it represents authority, and it represents safety or protection. The leadership, the man of God, the woman of God is divinely protected. He has divine authority from God, and he has divine uh, protection and safety from God. We stop right here just to say that we have to be very careful We ought to be very, very careful when bringing up the name of a minister in a bad light. We ought to be very careful not to slander and and tear apart the man of God when the man of God is not around. Because why? There is divine protection over them. Now that is not to say that a man of God or a woman of God is always right and always correct. But that is to say that we had better keep our hands off of them. Or in the very least, make sure that you're in the right if you have something against a man or woman of God. Why? Because they're in the right hand of the Lord. He's got his eyes on them. He's got his protecting hand around them. Out of his mouth, he says, went a two edged sword. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of the Lord is powerful. And the sword that is coming out from the mouth of God, the mouth of Jesus is representative of his word. See, when Jesus fights at the end of days, he's going to fight with just his word. Jesus doesn't need, uh, doesn't need equipment like we do. I love guns. I love different kinds of guns, but Jesus doesn't need a gun. Jesus doesn't need an actual sword. Does, Jesus doesn't need an army of tanks, a battalion of tanks. Jesus doesn't need nuclear weapon, weapons, nuclear missiles. Jesus just needs His Word. When Jesus speaks, it's final. It's done. That's how powerful His Word is. In Genesis, it was the Word that spoke everything into existence. We we say that as ex nihilo, something out of nothing. I've said it before, humans, we're creative, but we create stuff out of stuff that already exists. God doesn't need anything to exist. He makes it exist. He speaks it into existence. That's the power of His Word. And then in John 1 and 14, we read that the Word, the Logos of God, the Word was made flesh and it dwelt among us. John Phillips said this talking about the the two-edged sword, the Word of the Lord. He said, whether it is the Word going forth to replenish the earth in Genesis 1 or to redeem the earth as in the days of His flesh, or to reclaim the earth as is here in this majestic scene, the result is always the same. Whether as creator, comforter, or conqueror, that mighty word is invincible. There's nothing like the word of the Lord. And how comforting is it to know that all He needs is a word. That's all Jesus needs. I don't have to worry about Jesus running out of ammo. I don't have to worry about Jesus running out of weapons, running out of military might. As long as Jesus can speak, he is in control because his word is the weapon that he uses. And how much more should we equip ourselves with the word? It's a power, it's undefeated, it's undefeatable, amen. When Jesus fought the devil, he didn't bring a sword to the battle, he brought the word of the Lord to the battle. That's how we fight our battles. I know there's a popular song that, that and, and, and we like to think that we fight our battles through praise. And we fight our battle through worship and other means. But that's not how we fight our battles. Jesus told us how to fight our battles. We fight our battles with the Word of the Lord. I stand on the Word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Because His Word is unbeatable. It's undefeatable. I'm thankful for the Word of the Lord. And then John saw, he says, He saw Him shining like the sun. We look at this and we have another example of this. You remember on the road to Damascus when Paul was struck blind. He was struck blind by Jesus. What did he see? He saw a bright, shining light. He saw Jesus. What a powerful, a uh, vision of almighty God that John saw and whereas Paul was struck blind by the mighty vision of almighty God shining in all of his glory John wasn't struck blind John was able to view him the unveiling of the Lord shining bright for all to see verse 17 And when I saw him, this is what happened to John. He said, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. When John sees Jesus, he collapses in fear. When John sees Jesus... He was, he was moved. It stirred an emotion inside of John. John was not unmovable. John could not stand stoic in the presence of Almighty God. John could not stand there uh, just examining and taking in the wonder. You know, um, you know, some people when they get in the presence of God, they just kind of just sit there and just kind of soak it all in. When John saw Jesus, there was no soaking in to be had. When he realized what it was that he was seeing in the bright shining light and the sword that was representative coming out of his mouth and the feet of brass and the eyes of fire, John saw him and fear gripped his heart and he fell immediately to his knees in a worshipful posture to Almighty God. Many people feel like that they have seen Jesus. I've heard people say this. I, I've seen Jesus. I uh, I one preacher I heard say that uh he sets up a chair in his room. And when he exactly and when he prays that Jesus comes in the room and Jesus sits in that chair with him and talks with him. But what's interesting is when John saw Jesus, there was no calm, cooling presence. When Jesus was revealed to John it was it was a fearful thing If you've actually seen Jesus you're not going to be able just to sit there comfortably and continue even on your knees by your bed praying, there's going to be an immediate reaction to the presence of the Lord walking with you. If if your eyes are open the way John's eyes were opened, you're not going to be able just to stand there like you would be standing next to your brother or sister. There's going to be something inside of you, most likely some fear that's going to grip you and get a hold of you. That's what John... John really saw Jesus. John wasn't just saying that he saw Jesus. It says that it struck him fear so great it was almost like death. It, his heart was beating so fast he, he really felt like he might die. That's how, much, that's how afraid he was at just the sight of Almighty God. Now I want to tell you I cannot wait to see Jesus. I cannot wait to see Jesus in all of His glory. That song, I can only imagine it really, it really does hit home because I really, can't, I can only imagine what that day is going to be like. But I am, I am very aware as I read what John said that my first reaction upon seeing Jesus isn't probably going to be very comfortable. It's probably going to be pretty shocking as I see with my eyes wide open the Almighty God standing there. In all of His glory, awesome wonder that Jesus is. See, this is not a casual thing that we have here. This is not a casual God that we serve. He's the God of all the universe. This reminds me of a conversation in the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you've ever read the books, it's, a, it's a, C.S. Lewis is the writer. He, he does a great job, and, and it's an analogy uh, of the Bible. And in this, the little girl is talking to uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And she's asking him, them, about Aslan. And Aslan in the book is representative of God, of Jesus. And she says, Is Aslan a man? And the beaver says, No, Aslan is a lion. And then she says, Well, is Aslan safe? And they said, who in the world told you that Aslan was safe? Aslan is a lion. He has a roar. He is mighty. Aslan is not safe. There's a fear that should come, come, come get a hold of us. But then she adds, Miss Beaver adds just a little bit more. Though Aslan is not safe, Aslan is good. As Jesus is not safe, we want to create this, this idea of Jesus as being just a loving, merciful pushover. And thank God that Jesus is loving and thank God that Jesus is merciful, but Jesus is not a pushover. And what we find in the book of Revelation is that time of mercy, it's over. And now Jesus is stepping forward in judgment of all of the earth righteous judgment of all of the earth. Jesus is not a safe God, but He is a good God. He is a just God. He is a righteous God. So how should we come before Him? We should not come before Him like He's just anybody Like he's just another somebody, like he's just a good buddy. We ought to come before him with fear, with respect, with reverence, but understanding that he is good and that he does love us and that he does have mercy on us. Too many times though, when we approach God, we do it with a, with, we're so casual about our approach to God. Mark Hitchcock, he told a story of a former governor of New York. He's getting ready to speak at this convention, and the person that is announcing him is making light of his office, kind of making small of, of the office of governor, um, kind of uh, almost making fun of it. it, just like it's nothing. It's just the governor. And he does this for a little while, and after cracking a few jokes, he finally says, ladies and gentlemen, the governor. And the governor walks up and the governor is, he's frustrated. Because whether you have respect for him or not, he feels you should have respect for the position, the office, the office of governor. And so he tells a story. He says, when I was young, my dad took me to this parade. And he said, and we were so proud and we were seeing the troops and the troops were marching down Main Street and, and uh, it was exciting and we honored the troops. And he said, and all of a sudden I felt my dad tighten with pride. And he said, I, I looked over and I, and I could see a gleam in his eye and there was, there, was an, there was an excitedness about him. And he said, Dad, what is it? And he said, son, it's the governor. And with that story, the governor of New York said, the Governor of New York bid you good night, and he left. Why? Because there was no respect for the office anyways. They, they, he felt like they should have respected him the way that his dad had respected the office years before. But how many times? See, Jesus is not a governor. Jesus is not the president. He's greater. Jesus is not just a prophet, just a teacher. He's greater. And he is in our midst. And there ought to be a respect. There ought we. we there ought to be a, a holy fear that would come upon us in the house of the Lord. I, I, I make a joke about how I was raised, but I can still remember um, my mother, a great saint of God that she is. I was sitting right in front of her, and just like you boys are doing right now, and I put a starburst in my mouth and i thought that that starburst a starburst was 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 free like that was a good game like there was going to be no problem with that and my mom from the corner of her eye she thinks she sees my jaw moving and she believes that i am chewing gum and she pops me in the back of the head and that uh that starburst comes out of my mouth and she said and and in her mind i was being disrespectful to the house of the lord you don't chew gum in the house of the lord that was that was, and what was she trying to do? And, and, and we can talk about whether or not I should have been allowed to, to have candy in the house of the Lord. We were allowed to have peppermint and that was it because peppermint is sanctified candy. <laughs> Praise God. Sancti- peppermint is holy candy. Amen. And we can discuss, we can discuss whether or not, uh, you know, which candies are, are right and which ones are not right. But the point is, is that you've got to have a respect for the house of God. And you know what? I, I, I don't know if dad still remembers, but I remember I was like 14 years old. I came into the sanctuary with my hat on, and same thing happened. Dad walks over there. I didn't see him coming. Didn't know it was going to happen. And all of a sudden, my head just started ringing, and my hat goes flying across. It happened right back there. It was before that was even built and back there. I walked in, and I wasn't in the sanctuary for five minutes, and the hat came flying off and it hit the wall. And he wasn't, he wasn't, we laugh about it. He wasn't trying to be mean. He was trying to get his son to understand that when you step into this place, this has been sanctified to God. This is his holy place. And we ought to treat it a certain way. We ought to come before God with a, with a certain reverence to him and to his presence and to his house. Amen. I'm afraid we're losing some of that. And you know what? People can people can say that my, my parents may not have had the greatest parenting strategy, but I have never walked into a sanctuary anywhere in my life after moments like that without thinking to myself, this is the holy place and I've got to be careful. At Bible college, whenever I was sitting there and I would look around and I, I mean, there was a, there's a friend over here and they're digging into a bag of candy. I'm thinking, my heart just smote me inside of me. And I'm thinking, this is the holy place. And this time it wasn't mom that was getting angry at what was going on. It was me because she put it inside of me that we ought to respect the house of God. Right. Amen. And why is that? Because Jesus goes to church. Because He's here, we ought to reverence Him. This is no casual thing that we are doing on Wednesday nights and on Sunday mornings. We're coming before God Almighty. We're coming before Jesus. And we ought to do it with a certain amount of respect. What we find next is, is John is laying there. He's afraid. He's scared. And what happens? Jesus goes from majesty to mercy. And Jesus reaches down and puts a hand on John and says, It's okay, John. You don't have to fear. Stand up. And he, and he stood John up and he told John to continue to write. What happened? When you're in the presence of the Lord and you're living right, you've got nothing to worry about you come before him with fear and respect you've got nothing to worry about why because Jesus is on your side the only people who need to be desperately afraid even unto death in the presence of almighty God are those that are not living right and those that are not living under his authority and under his command but if you are living right and you're doing your best to please him and obey him you can come before him with fear but he's going to relax that fear with His mercy whenever you get into His presence. That's why we, we come before Him with a certain bit of respect. But whenever we get in this place, what we feel is not just reverence, but we feel liberty. We feel liberty to praise and liberty to worship. Why? Because Almighty God stands beside us, puts His hand on us, and says, you're okay, you've got nothing to fear. Amen. One last portion of scripture, first John chapter three, verse two and three, as I close. This is what the word of the Lord says. First John three, verses two and three. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man, here we go. I love it so much. And this is the same writer. This, the writer of 1st John is the same writer of Revelation. Every man that hath this hope inside of him. What hope? The hope of seeing Jesus as he is one day. The hope of looking on Jesus in all of his glory, and all of his splendor. What does this man do? This man that has this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. So what should we do while we're living? We should witness we should worship and we should wait for Almighty God. And while we're waiting, we ought to purify our hearts every day. We ought to find our way to, a, to an altar of repentance every day. We ought to every day. You say, where well, I'm not where I should be. That's okay. Are you trying to progress? Are you purifying yourself daily? Are you working on those habits every day? Are you trying to put those things under the blood? Are you trying to get closer to Jesus? That's the question. If the music wants to come and and you want to stand, that's the question. What are we doing? Are Are we every day growing closer to Him, purifying ourselves? Is that what we're doing? Are we reverencing God? Or are we going through the motions and have this casual, no big deal kind of walk with the Lord? I don't want to live for God that way. I want to see Jesus as He really is. High and lifted up. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. High and lifted up. And His train filled the temple. And what happened when Isaiah saw Him high and lifted up? He saw Himself as He really was. He said, I've got to repent I've got to get right. And that's the same That's the same uh, impulse that came over John whenever he got into the presence of Jesus. He said, I've got to get right. And I hope that's what we're doing. I hope we get right now so that we get before Him, we can celebrate and we can worship and we can have freedom in His house and in His presence. Amen.